March 16th, 1968, was a really bad day for Army Chief Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson flying in his OH-23 scout helicopter over the rice paddies of South Vietnam. He came across a ditch that was full of dead bodies, and those dead bodies were women and children. Looking out of the corner of his eye, he saw a U.S. Army officer at point-blank range executing a young Vietnamese woman. Looking out of the corner of his other eye, he saw an army sergeant with his M16 on fully automatic spraying down a group of women and children. He landed his helicopter, he grabbed the sergeant, and when he grabbed the sergeant, the sergeant's platoon leader, a lieutenant, came over and grabbed him. There was a conversation that ensued. It went like this, Thompson, what's going on here, lieutenant? Lieutenant, this is my business. Thompson, what's this? Who are these people? Lieutenant, I'm just following orders. Thompson, whose orders? These are human beings, sir, unarmed civilians. Lieutenant, look, Thompson, this is my show. I'm in charge. It ain't your concern. You better get back in that chopper and mind your own business. Thompson, you ain't heard the last of this. He got into his helicopter and he began shielding the civilians from this rogue army unit that was conducting a massacre. At one point, he had to train his weapons on the civilians or on the, uh, on the soldiers who were shooting the civilians in order to stop the shootings. At the end of the day, 400 civilians would be massacred in the biggest black mark on modern U.S. military history, a black mark known as the My Lai Massacre. The Lieutenant William Cowley would be held accountable, the only one held accountable. He'd be given a life sentence in prison, but only served three years, and those three years under house arrest, justice was not served. The warrant officer, Hugh Thompson, would receive death threats. Senior military officers would try to kick him out of the military. There would be a move within his, his own state Congress to get him kicked out of the military because he had trained his weapons on soldiers. It would be 30 years later before the government, the U.S. government, would try to right this wrong with Hugh Thompson. He would be able to retire in 1993 with character, honor, and faith. But 30 years from the day of the My Lai Massacre, he'd, be, he'd receive the Soldier's Medal for, quote, doing the right thing, even at the risk of personal safety, for being a true example of American patriotism at its finest for doing the right thing at great risk. Have you ever considered that so often in life we get into times of difficulty because we're doing the right thing rather than the wrong thing? And have you ever considered that in life uh, the choices that we make, whether they're on the battlefield or on the playing field, in the boardroom or in the bedroom, have consequences? Well, this is what we're going to be talking about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. The choices you make today affect the life you'll live tomorrow. The choices you make today will affect the life you'll live tomorrow. Hugh Thompson made a choice in a, in a tough time, and that choice had repercussions at first very negative, but eventually positive. William Cowley is still, the, the, the story of William Cowley and his decisions he made on the battlefield are still taught in all of our military academies and schools as what not to do. And he's known in military circles as a traitor and a coward. The choices you make today will affect 
the life you'll live tomorrow. So today, this Memorial Day weekend, we're going to be talking about character, honor, and integrity. We're going to be talking about what it means to do what's right, especially when no one's looking. We're going to talk about selfless service, and we're going to look at two of my biblical heroes. One of them is a guy named Uriah the Hittite. He's not well known in Scripture, but he is truly a man of character, integrity, and faith. And we're going to compare him with another one of my biblical heroes, another warrior, a warrior who loses his fight and falls in shame, a warrior who loses his focus to feed his lust, a warrior who loses his honor to satisfy his hubris, that that feeling that he's special, therefore he deserves what he's lusting for, a warrior known as a man after God's own heart, a warrior named David. And what we're going to find today is that the choices you make today will affect the life you'll live tomorrow. God's got a lot to say about that. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me set the scene for what's going on. We're about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. That's about 3,000 plus years ago. Israel is on its second king. Its first king is a guy named Saul. He lasts for about 40 years. When he dies, the country implodes. There's civil war. David has to, it takes him several years to get control of the country. He is now king. He's about 50 years old, and Israel is enjoying great prosperity. Normally, it's in springtime when our story kicks off. David would go out into combat with his men. He led by example as a king, but for some reason... This time, he stays back. Remember our main theme. The choices you make today will affect the life you live tomorrow. He's going to live that out in spades. Here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. Joab's the commander of his military. He's the chief of staff of the military. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David makes a choice that's going to haunt him forever. So who are these guys called the Ammonites? Uh, you may not know the, the, their founder. Their founder is a guy named Ben-Ami. It's the guy they spring from. But you probably know his, his father slash grandfather. His name is Lot. Abram and Sarai, they leave Haran. They come to Canaan. And they bring with them Abram's nephew, Lot. Uh, Abram and Lot part ways. Lot ends up going to Sodom and Gomorrah, and before God spankles Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his two daughters are able to escape. The two daughters don't escape with their husbands. They freak out. They think, we're not going to have husbands. We're not going to have kids. So they get Lot drunk, and on separate nights, each daughter sleeps with their dad. One of the daughters is pregnant, and she has a son, Ben-Ami. That's where the Ammonites come from. They worship a god named Moloch, and in the Old Testament, the names mean a lot. Moloch means king of shame. That's important in our story today. The the way they would worship him would be through child prostitution at the temples and child sacrifice. They had this huge statue of a man with an ox head, and there's an opening in the statue. They'd take the kids alive, and they'd put them in the statue. They'd build a fire around the statue. They'd beat these drums, and they'd burn these children alive, and you couldn't hear their screams because of the drum beating. What's my point of this? My point is, is that shame is a theme in this story. This is a story of good versus evil. This is a story of God versus evil. 
And what we're going to find out today is that sometimes the biggest evil we fight is the evil within ourselves. Sometimes the biggest evil we fight is the evil within ourselves. The Israelites are fighting the Ammonites in a place called Rabbah. They've defeated them everywhere else, but they're at a stronghold. David should be there, and he's not. Let's look what happens. Verses 2 and 3. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So David's not at his place of duty, and he can't sleep. Normally what he'd do when he couldn't sleep, according to Psalm 63, which he wrote, is he'd meditate on God's Word. But this night, he gets up from bed and he goes out on the roof, and that's not abnormal. Most people would go out to their roof to entertain at nighttime. It's cool. They'd escape the heat. And he's got this palace, and it overlooks all of Jerusalem. He's got the high ground, and as he, he's looking out, he sees this beautiful woman bathing on her roof. Her name is Bathsheba, and as I said, names mean a lot. Her name means daughter of the oath. That's important in today's story. Her dad is a guy named Eliam. Her husband is a guy named Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. Now, Eliam and Uriah belong to what's called the 37. The 37 are like the SEAL Team 6 Delta Force of the Israeli army in that time. 37 of the toughest warriors who've got shared mud and blood with David. They've been through countless battles together, serving countless years together. They're trained in hand-to-hand combat, use of the sword, the spear, the slingshot, the bow, the arrow, and they're close warriors. Speculation here, but I don't think this is the first time David ever saw Bathsheba. In fact, we're going to find out that David has a lust problem. And I would argue that, that, and this is speculation, but I would argue that with this 37, these guys have been together for years, and you got 37 warriors, you're going to know each other's families. And so David gets missile lock on. He sees her, and his lust kicks in. Speculation, though, that he had seen her before, but this isn't speculation. Where your mind goes, your actions follow. Where your mind goes, your actions follow. David sees her, and in his mind, he starts formulating something, and next we'll see actions that follow. As I said, David had a lust problem. Go down a rabbit trail with me. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, 500 years before this, God is speaking to the Israelites through Moses, and he says, you guys are idiots. You're going to want a king but I'm your king. You're, you're going to do it anyway. So when you get a king, when you, 500 years before they get a king, when you get a king, he will not multiply lot, wives, meaning he's only going to have one wife. So the first king is King Saul. How many wives does Saul have? One. And then David comes on the scene. How many wives does David have? Four. They're all very beautiful. He also has scores of concubines. They're specifically to satisfy him sexually. And so he sees this beautiful woman, and he's got a choice. He could do the eye bounce and walk away. He can leave the scene, but he makes a choice. Remember our main main thought, the choices you make today affect the life you'll live tomorrow. Let's keep on going, verses 4 and 5. Then David sent messengers to get her. Let me read that again. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and slept with her. 
Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And the gulp heard round the world came from David. The abuse of authority to get sexual favors from others is nothing new under the sun. It's been going on for thousands upon thousands of years, and it grieved heart, God's heart then, and it grieves God's heart now. I disagree with biblical scholars who say that, that Bathsheba had something to do with this. You know, they say that she knew the Mosaic law, therefore she knew what she was doing. And it's that same attitude that says she was dressed that way, therefore she deserved it. She's in a a male-dominated industry. She knows she's got to sleep to get to the top. And that grieves God's heart. She had no choice in this matter. Yeah, she knew the Mosaic Law, but you've got David, who's a charismatic, incredible leader, who's very popular, and he's the king. And when the king says, come to me, you're going to come to me. Remember, then David sent messengers to get her. She had no choice. I believe the Bible's relevant. I believe the Bible is clear as a bell thousands of years ago and clear today that that grieved God's heart. And I just want to press pause on this story. I want to press pause because one out of every three women and one out of every five or six men, depending on the study, are going to suffer sexual assault and sexual abuse. And it may come from a boss. It may come from a colleague a coach, a co-worker, a friend, someone you trust, a pastor, a parent, a relative, a teacher. And what I want to do right now is I want to pray for those of you, one out of every three of you women, one out of every five or six of you men, where you've had to suffer this. Jesus came to bind the wounds of the brokenhearted, And as I said, it broke his heart when this happened. And and the church, the big C church, in silence has perpetuated a lot of pain. We're not going to be silent here at Cornwall. We want to accentuate your healing. So will you pray with me for those who've been sexually abused or hurt by someone? Jesus, you're the God of endless love. You are ever-present, always just, always caring, and always strong. We lift up those here today who have been abused by those who took advantage of trust, position, title, and authority. Will you join to our own suffering that pain and agony? The wounds of all who have been hurt emotionally, physically, and spiritually by those who betrayed that trust. Hear the cries both silent and loud of the wounded. Soothe their hearts with hope that Jesus only you can provide. Steady their spirits with faith. Bring about justice and wholeness because we know you will in your time. Transform these broken hearts as you bring these broken shards of glass together into a beautifully stained glass window that reflects the beauty of you, Jesus Christ. Help us release bitterness and pain. Redeem these wounds as we seek peace, that perfect peace that can only be found in you, Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, your wounds are redeemable. And here at Cornwall, we want to walk with you. If you have suffered something like that, we've got a list of counselors at guest services here and in Skagit. We also have a a means for you to link in with a counselor or with a a pastor. Just send us a note at info at cornwallchurch.com. We want to walk with you. So back to David. David, I wonder, when he said her name Bathsheba, 
I wonder if he thought at that time about the meaning of her name, daughter of the oath. I wonder if he remembered the oath he was breaking in the Mosaic law. I wonder if he remembered the unwritten and unspoken oath between warriors, generations upon generations, that you don't sleep with another warrior's spouse. So now he's in a tight spot. Because he wasn't in his place of duty, he makes a series of choices. And those series of choices are because lust had mastered him. If you don't master your sin, your sin will master you. It's a truth. If you do not master your sin, if you do not take charge over your sin, your sin will master you. Jesus came to, to, to heal the wounds of the brokenhearted. He also releases us from the prison of sin. But He calls on us to work in tandem with Him. He's overcome these things, but we, we have to work with Him as we fight temptation day after day. We're talking about sexual sin here, but this is any sin, any sin that's out there. And if you don't master it, that one thing that pulls you down, it'll master you because it's all about a choice, and the choice you make today will affect the life you'll live tomorrow. So let's see what happens next. We're going to begin the cover-up. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. Let's talk about Uriah. Uriah's name means flame of the Lord, or the Lord is light. He's been in countless battles, and he's a man of importance. He's leading men in Rabbah. He's a leader. He's a fighter. He's a man of importance. We know that because his quarters are close to the palace. And the closer you are to the palace shows that you're important. He's a man of importance because he's given this, this lady named Bathsheba in, married from Eli, in marriage from Eliam, who's a very important man too. He's sworn allegiance to God. He's sworn allegiance to Israel because he's a foreigner. He's Uriah the Hittite, most likely a convert to Judaism. And he's sworn allegiance to David. And he's fighting the king of shame. And what we're going to see is that David's going to now become that king of shame. And what we're going to see next is a contrasting character. When you read the Old Testament and you see contrast, think good versus evil. If you see positive God, godly qualities, think Jesus. The Hebrew writings are, are done this way to emphasize. And we're going to see an emphasis here, verse 7. When Uriah, flame of the Lord, when Uriah, the Lord is light, came to him, David... David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. The direct translation of this verse is important. There's a special word in there, a special word Pastor Bob and I have preached from many times here from this platform, and that word is shalom. He's saying, what's the shalom of the soldiers? What's the shalom of the men? Shalom, it means more than peace. It means peace with God. It means peace and completeness and harmony with God. You can be in the middle of combat and experience shalom. So David's saying, ironically, how's the shalom of Joab and your men, even though he's disrupted that shalom for all of them? Right, so now we're going to begin the cover-up. What he wants to do is he wants to have Uriah come back and sleep with Bathsheba so when Bathsheba has the baby, everybody and Uriah is going to think that it's his son and not David's son, verses 8 and 9. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. 
So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Here's where we're going to start living or seeing Uriah live out his character, living out integrity, doing what, what's right when no one is around. This phrase, go down and wash your feet. Wash your feet is a Hebrew euphemism. It's a Hebrew slang. And sometimes, not all the time, sometimes in Scripture it means to take a bath before you have sexual relations. I think it can be applied here because this is what David's wanting Uriah to do. So he says, hey, go, you've been out in combat. Come back, kick back, have a few drinks, relax, make love with your wife, and we'll talk tomorrow. Look what happens next, verses 10 and 11, because here's the snapshot of Uriah's character. When David was told Uriah didn't go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men, David's men, are camped in the open fields. What that means is they're, they're in combat right now. They're on a military campaign. How can I go down to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, David, King David, I will not do such a thing. Okay, why is this a snapshot of his character? He gives several reasons why he can't go back and sleep with his wife. First of all, he says, the ark is in combat, the ark, not Noah's ark, but the ark of the covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, it's biblical. And so the, the ark is in combat, and the, the Israelites believed that the presence of the ark was the, the very presence of God. So they're saying, God's in combat. I can't go out and hang out with my wife and chill out. But then he says, Israel, the country I've sworn allegiance to as a foreigner, you're in combat. Judah, your tribe, David, from which you come from, side note, the tribe from which Jesus would come from, is in combat. But then he says something else. My men and my commander are in combat. You see, if you go back to 1 Samuel 21, you're going to see that David required all of his men to take an oath of purity before they would go on a military campaign. It's an oath that he cannot break. It's an oath, a full-time, long-term oath he will not break. David has broken that oath by sleeping with the daughter of the oath. So he's swearing this oath to his king, as surely as you live, I will not do such a thing, even though David has slept with the daughter of the oath. He's saying, the ark and my men are at their place of duty. As I said, I really believe the Bible's relevant to this day. And it begs a question for all of us. And that question is, where is your place of duty? Where is your place of duty? In this whole story, this, this theme of place of duty is woven throughout the story because so often in life we find ourselves in a mess because we're not at our place of duty. When it's 2 a.m., we can't sleep, and the wife and kids are sound asleep, and we got our phone, and we're looking at something we shouldn't, or we're looking at our computer screen, and it's got that, that you must be 18 to enter, and you're, you're ready to press that button, that, that mouse, click that mouse, and go to that site. Where's your place of duty? When you're sitting around with all your friends, and you're talking about someone who's not in the room, and you're gossiping about them, where is your place of duty? When you're wanting to use... So you go find your dealer, and you're getting ready to shell out that cash because you just got to have that. Where is your place of duty? Being at your place of duty is a choice. And remember, the choices you make today 
affect the life you'll live tomorrow? Where's your place of duty as a husband, a father, a son, a brother, a wife, a mother, a sister, a daughter, a friend, a teacher, a coach, an employer, an employee? Where's your place of duty? Back to David. He hasn't given up. Now he's going to really push this cover up. Verses 12 and 13. Then David said to him, Uriah, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat. Among his master's servants, he did not go home. David's not giving up. He's not giving up at all. And even when Uriah is drunk, he's showing more character than David. Have you ever considered that character is like a muscle? The more you use it, the better you get at it, the stronger it gets. The more you say no to stupid stuff, the easier it is to say yes to the right things. The the more you say no to the temptations, the easier it is and the stronger you get to walk away from those temptations. Character is about doing the right tough thing, especially when no one's around. And Uriah the Hittite was a man of character. His character was comprised of several things. Loyalty, duty, self-discipline. He commanded respect, but he gave respect. Integrity, honor, perseverance. And David had all of these things. This is, that was David also. But David had that one thing. You see, if you don't master your sin, your sin will master you. The biggest evil you fight is the evil within yourself. Lust had mastered David, and he had choice after choice. Two men. One one shows incredible godly character. The other had it and loses it. What happens next is that complete contrast. Here we go, verses 14 through 17. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David's committed adultery. He could make a choice to to repent and walk away. And, and take the, 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 the punishment. But he continues on with this cover-up. He gets to the point where Uriah is not going to fall for any of David's ploys, so what he does is he writes a death sentence. He puts the, the king's seal on it, and Uriah has to carry his own death sentence, unbeknownst to him, to Joab, who's going to do exactly what the king says. As I said, he's the king, and you never go against the king. And so Joab sends him out on a suicide mission, but not alone. And this is where we often over, overcast or, or walk over this one fact that David creates widows and orphans because it's not only Uriah that dies, it's these Israeli soldiers who die with him. They're fighting the king of shame, Molech, yet they're killed by their own king of shame. How did he get here? How did he get to this point? Tim Keller once said, sin does you. Hell begets hell. Lie begets lie. Sin begets sin. Sin does you. David had not mastered his sin. His sin mastered him. And it's real easy for us to sit here and say, that had never happened to me. I'd never, I'd never sleep, uh, sleep around on my spouse. Or 
I could never kill anybody. Come on, there's, there's no way I could kill anyone. I would love to go back to February 16th 1968, one month before the My Lai Massacre. I'd like to get Lieutenant Cowley's platoon, just a platoon out of his company, and go to just one squad and pull them aside and say, hey guys, would you ever put women and children in front of a ditch and then hose them down with your M16? I guarantee you that almost every single one of them, if not every one of them at that time, would say there's absolutely no way I would do that. But here's the thing. We are all one bad decision away from a moral or ethical failure. Every single one of us are just one bad decision away from a moral or ethical failure, and it can happen in the speed of a thought. See, the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, ready to jump on his prey. The thief, the enemy, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And as I look at this story, that whole concept that sin does you just hits, you right, hits me right in the face. Every time I preach, I tell you guys, I'm preaching to myself every single time. Every morning when I get up, it's a battle for character. You know, I receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and He tells me that I put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6 tells me I'm supposed to do that from head to toe, but I still battle. And some days I get a win. Some days the enemy gets a win because I battle envy, greed, pride, and lust. But here's the beauty about Jesus. He gives you the strength to fight that good fight. But because of His grace, His patience, and His mercy, He says if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can stand back up, get our faces out of the dirt, we dust off and we get back into the arena to fight because that's what He calls us to do. It usually starts with a thought. In fact, if you think about all sin, almost every single time it starts with a thought. Frank Outlaw said these words. Watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. It takes a constant focus to keep from making that one bad decision. David made that one bad decision, and it haunted him for the rest of his life. He would lose most of his kingdom would stay together barely, but he would lose his family, and there would be many, many people who would suffer from his decision, all because he lost his focus to feed his lust, because he lost his fight and fell in shame. He lost his honor to satisfy that thing he thought he deserved. It's all about choices. The choices we make today have a ripple effect in our lives tomorrow. So how is David, how in the world is David known as a man after God's own heart? It's a fair question. We don't have time to go into 2 Samuel chapter 12, but let me just explain the story. There's a prophet named Nathan, and he and David has a, have a relationship. He's got the right to be heard in David's life. That's important. When we confront someone with a sin issue, if we don't have a right to be heard, it's just going to go over their head. And Nathan pulls David aside because here's what happened. happens. Uriah dies, and then Bathsheba does uh, her, her proper time for boohoo, and then she comes in and moves in with David. And David's thinking, everything is good. Nobody knows. Joab, he's, I can trust him. I'm in the clear. Nathan comes to David and says, hey, your majesty, we got a problem. Let me explain the situation because uh, we need your, your decision on this. We had, uh, there's a, a very rich man, and he's got a whole bunch of sheep. 
And then there's this very poor man. This poor man has one lamb, a beautiful, innocent lamb that, that sits at the table with him. He loves this lamb so much. In fact, he loves the lamb so much it drinks out of his own chalice. Well, the, the rich man had a guest come into town, and instead of going out and killing one of his own sheep, he went and stole the sheep of the poor man. What should we do about that? David is so upset. He said, surely as the Lord lives, that man will die. And Nathan looks at him and says, David, you are that man. It's the reason why I think Bathsheba was innocent, because it's an innocent lamb that he talks about. And when David is confronted with that, he shows great spiritual maturity. First of all, David loves God with everything he has. He always had, but he had this one thing that he couldn't overcome until this day. And so, he loves God with everything, and then he repents. Repent, it's a, it's a, a military term. It means to do an about-face, not only with your actions, but with your heart. And as you do that about-face and look away from what you've done, you look up towards the one who will forgive David pens four psalms, two of them indirectly related to this, Psalms 86 and 122, but then two of them directly related to this, Psalm 32, Psalm 51. Incredible words come out of those psalms, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. David doesn't about face, and he knows that God could kill him right there. But we have a God of mercy, full of grace. And what I love about this story is how it points to the cross. It points to the grace given to us by God through Jesus because we've got this chasm between us and God of all the junk in our lives, those bad decisions that cause those ethical and moral failures. And only Jesus can overcome that. So God steps down from his throne. He gives us Jesus. Jesus dies for us. So now when he looks at you, when he looks at me, he says, that's my kid. I'll do anything. It's about grace. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, said these words. Grace means there's nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I who deserve the opposite, I'm invited to take my place at the table in God's family. For God so loved, he gave. And he's the God of the flip. It's what I love about God. He flips it all on its head. Here you've got this, this crazy thing that happens, and God flips it. It's the gospel of Jesus, bad things made good through Jesus, who loves us. Grace is a free gift from God only because the giver himself, Jesus, paid the price. And following him is a choice. The choice you make today will not only affect the life you'll live tomorrow, it'll, it'll affect your eternal life. Jesus says on the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, and he just calls on us to make a choice. Well, as we close today, I want to give you a challenge. And this is your challenge. Your challenge this week, every time you face a time of temptation, because we're going to face temptations throughout the entire week, every single day, your challenge is to ask yourself this question, where is my place of duty? Where is my place of duty? And I, I especially shout that out to the students who would love to skip class this time of year. For those of us who love to be outdoors, 
this time of year? Where's my place of duty? Is it wise for me to call in sick? So many things can happen when we're not at our place of duty. Being at our place of duty is a choice. The choice you make today will affect the life you live tomorrow. Well, we're real excited about this summer. This summer, we've got a series called Stories Worth Telling, and this is ex an example of what we're going to be talking about. Each week, we're going to grab a different carrier, char character, a biblical character that has a past, and then God's going to intervene in that past, and He's going to show up in a very special way. You don't want to miss it. Next week, we're going to talk about a gal who gets completeness from other things in her life until she meets God, and then her life changed drastically. So you want to be here for it. All right, Skagit, I'm going to turn you over to Pastor Brian. Thank you so much for being with us. Boca Raton in Florida, we are so glad you're part of, of our church. And for those of you joining us online, thank you so much for being here. And here in Bellingham, let's go ahead and stand and close in prayer.